0: Welcome to the Guild of Dads podcast, the number one place for dads into self-improvement, or as I like to call it, dad-provement. If you're a regular listener, then this may be the first episode that popped up on your player for a while. I've taken a break this past few months to deal with some personal stuff, which will shape some of the conversations in upcoming episodes. So hopefully, my experience translates into some real-life learned wisdom, which I can share. Guild of Dads is the epicentre of dad-provement. I'm Joe Horton, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. On each episode of this podcast, I deliver to you conversations that will expand what you think is possible for you across many areas of life and give you actionable resources on a particular topic or a different perspective. I do this by speaking to fascinating individuals, best-selling authors, entrepreneurs and ultra-athletes, professors, psychologists, anthropologists, and also some ordinary dads like you doing some amazing things. It's a tough gig, being a dad, and none of us get a handbook for it, but it also represents a golden opportunity for personal growth. If you're anything like me, you're searching out information to be a better, more capable, competent, effective man and father, someone your kids can look up to and live a life where you're growing, thriving, and learning new things, acquiring new skills and knowledge, getting your mental health physical health, relationships, and development in optimal shape, all at the same time showing up as the best dad you can be. That's what I call dad-provement. There are a few ways you can get involved with Guild of Dads. You can listen to this podcast first and foremost, but you can also follow me over on Twitter or LinkedIn. There's also some exciting plans afoot for 2023 coming up, so make sure you follow me to stay up to date with this. Shoot me a DM, as always, to say hi, or drop me an email to joe at guildofdads.com. I'd love to hear from you. On today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by evolutionary anthropologist, writer, and broadcaster to talk about her most recent book entitled Why We Love, the new science behind our closest relationships, Anna Machin. If she sounds familiar, it's because this is her second time on the podcast You can also check out my earlier conversation with her about her book, Life of Dad. When the subject of love comes up in discussion, it's always a hotly debated subject which draws strong opinions from most people around what love is, what love isn't, why love changes, and the different types of love. Fortunately, Anna dives into the different types of love that exist in the world today with some fascinating stories, interesting science, why we shouldn't put romantic love on a pedestal, and why a radical rethink of love is much needed. And now, to my conversation with Anna. Anna, welcome to the Gure of Dads podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me again.
0: <laughs> you have got the dubious distinction of being the second person to have returned to, to the podcast, uh, albeit to speak about a different book. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be uh, speaking to you again uh, on, this, uh, on your new book. So uh, it's going to be an interesting discussion about this one.
1: Thank
0: you. So, your new book is called "Why We Love." I I previously spoke to you about your other book, "Life of Dad." Now, "Why We Love" is slightly different. It's a it's a completely different kind of um, theme, and it's kind of put together the book structurally in a kind of different way as well. I think, which covers a lot, multitude of different kind of uh, facets of how we live and how society um, how society is in terms of how we. How we do love? What was the kind of inspiration behind the book, and why did you want to write a book about why we love Anna?
1: Main, well, several inspirations. First of all, because that's actually what my job is. So my job is to answer the question, "What is love?" And the dad book came out of of a sort of a, a part of that work. So my job is to research all our close close relationships, and I suppose I wrote the dad book first because that's that was that's my passion and there wasn't really anybody sharing that work with dads. So I wanted to write that there, but actually broader than that, I've always researched other relationships as well. So sort of romantic relationships, friendships, you know, um, you know, family relationships, all those sorts of things. So um, this book really is all my work in a nutshell to a certain extent. Um, And the inspiration came because as an anthropologist, my job is to sort of look at any sort of particular human behavior or trait from all possible angles. So I bring in science, but I also bring in, you know, lived experience and the social side of things. And I think I wanted to write it because I'm not sure there are any other books that have done that with love. When you look at the books that are on the market, they tend to give you one particular perspective on love so it might be what happens in your brain or it might be psychology or it might be I don't know how it influences art or all these sorts of things I thought that's lovely but you'd have to read all these different books to actually work out what human love was because it's not just one thing you can't answer the question what is love with a single answer or a single reason so over my you know 12, 13, 14 years of researching love, I realized there's lots of different answers to that question, depending upon which perspective you look at it from. And they're all right, but none of them is the only answer. So the book came from wanting to try and put all that together and try and get people to see sort of a holistic picture of love. So understand that, yeah, it has lots of biological inputs and we can explain all those. Um, But it also has a lot of input from your lived experience, from how you were brought up, maybe what religion you are, maybe what politics you are, what culture you live in. And I kind of wanted to bring all that together to show people how amazing human love is, that actually we can't reduce it to a formulae or a single question, that it infiltrates all your different biological and psychological mechanisms, but it also actually infiltrates all your interactions in your life. Mm. And that's what as a as an anthropologist you know I do find the universal things that join us interesting so we all love but it's actually how we are individually different also that's interesting and I think I wanted to make people understand that 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 you know how I love and how you love for example are going to be different and some of the things that make it different are this 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 and this so the book is 10 chapters and each chapter is one of the answers to the question what is love so, you know, if you can read one chapter and go, right, oh, right, OK, so that's the neurochemical explanation for what love is, or that's the social explanation for what love is. But you can also read all of them and realize that actually they are all the answer, which in a way is a bit mind blowing and probably a little bit confusing. But at the same time, I think shows you how complex human love is and also how lucky we are to have it, actually, because we are the only species that has quite so many options when it comes to who we love and mm. what we love. Mm. And I think that's that's lucky.
0: Yeah, and I think what I liked about the way you kind of piece the book together as well is that you bring in the different cultural uh, influences, uh, but also you, you weave that together with, like you say, uh, the, the the subjective experience of people. Uh, yeah, and and that's what kind of I quite liked about it because a lot of the books, particularly in terms of kind of relationship advice, are very much kind of they're either kind of very structural in their nature about how you how you need to show up. Or, hmm. or or very kind of um around how you can build uh, build re- what i would call build relationship comfort the kind of soft skills sort of thing but there's no there's it's often very difficult to find books on these topics which have that have got a balance of the two and i think that's what i liked about the book is that it di- it does kind of mesh the two things together and um there are some quite funny bits through, through, throughout the book as well <laughs> that uh, that did kind of make me laugh as well and, uh, and um yeah, definitely. There are definitely some very funny bits in there. In terms of like the the, the, the first chapter delves into survival, why why is love key to our survival as a, as a species? I think I know the answer to it because it's obviously uh, it's kind of almost self-explanatory. But we'll, yeah. we'll delve into that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So love is at the basis of our survival because we all have to cooperate with each other to survive. Um, we are a really complicated species. And if we didn't rely on each other to do various things, you know you wouldn't be able to survive so there's three key areas where you have to cooperate you have to cooperate to raise your children and if you think you know you might cooperate with your partner you might cooperate with your wider friends or family you know childcare, advice whatever it might be but also if you think of all the professionals that input into your child's life as you as they grow you've got all that as well so we have to cooperate there we have to cooperate to learn Um, there is a hell of a lot to learn as a human, social and technological. And, you know, we're constantly innovating new things, which we then all have to learn, even going well into adulthood. And there's so much to learn. You couldn't do that on a trial and error basis. You couldn't just sort it out yourself. So you have to rely on other people to help you learn that and teach. That's called social learning. And, And we are the most advanced social learners in terms of species. We're the only species that actively teaches each other. And then you just have to cooperate to subsist, you know, and even, you know, okay, obviously, in the environment in which we evolved, we can imagine what that was. You know, that was cooperative hunting. It was relying on each other's knowledge about sources of water or shelter. You know, it was about learning skills of, you know, flint napping or whatever it was from each other. But even today, if you think of all the people who are involved in, you know, growing and picking and packing the food that you then maybe go to the supermarket or even get delivered to your door... There's loads of people in that chain that you're cooperating with. So we need to do that because otherwise as a species, we don't survive. However, cooperation is really, really hard. And we know that our social relationships are sometimes the most stressful thing we have to deal with. Ideally, all species evolve to be solitary because if you're solitary, you can be completely selfish. You can do whatever you want every day. You don't have to coordinate your day with other people. You don't have to take other people's needs into it. You don't have to exist in a hierarchy where there's pressure but most animals are group living because they have to be Uh, and therefore we have to find something that's gonna make us start and then invest in those relationships we need and that's what love is love is basically the most basic level biological bribery so it's there to bribe you to give you some lovely neurochemicals that motivate you and then reward you for doing what what you need to do to survive um to make sure that you, you know, invest in those survival critical relationships basically. And that's what at the most basic level, that's why love evolved. Mm. Now, obviously love is many, many, many other things. And that's why I wanted to write the book as I did, but that's its basic explanation.
0: Yeah. And we've seen an interesting, it's it's interesting that you wrote the book during the, during the uh, pandemic, I think. Um, And we see how the world has come, come back to life and we've begun to start connecting with one another after the pandemic and, the restrictions have lifted and all the rest of it and stuff mm. and one of the uh, one of the things that i've been talking to people about recently just on this topic on this topic of survival is how i get the impression that there is maybe the honeymoon period of working from home and the productivity benefits and the convenience of picking up kids from school and stuff i get the impression in the last couple of months that is wearing off a little bit mm-hmm. and we're actually reverting back to actually no we need to be socializing with other people mm-hmm. we need to being in physical contact with other people. And one of the things that I experienced um, when stuff did begin to lift and when people became a little bit more relaxed about being tactile again was this like um, a, a, one of the guys I know, you know, we walked up and we were like, you know, do we do this or do we do, we do that? Or, and eventually we just like did a full on kind of man hug sort of thing. Yeah. And it sounds weird, but that felt really nice after a few months of not doing that at all. Because I'm quite a tactile person anyway. Yeah. But it's interesting how um to underline your point about cooperation, how it's it's cooperation, but it's also this um this feeling as if you're kind of part of something and part of
1: absolutely, and but that's and that at the most basic level is your neurochemistry. So because the 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 way your neurochemistry is best released is by touch and being present with people. So I think what we felt during the pandemic when we were all separated and all we could do was speak to someone on the phone or you know do a Zoom call or whatever it might be, is we felt the lack of that neurochemistry. We felt the lack of that that happiness, that warmth that comes from being with each other. Um, And I think, you know, when people used to say, you know, they were, you know, they could, they physically ached to be with somebody else, or they, you know, their mental health was suffering. That's all because they weren't getting this really important input that you need. And you need these neurochemicals to keep you happy, to keep you healthy, to keep you ticking over. So yeah, that yearning to actually touch someone or be in the same room as someone, that that's you not getting the hit that evolution deemed that you needed to to be able to carry on through life so you know we are addicted to these chemicals we really need them in our life and if we don't get them we feel that physically and psychologically Mm, I mean it's a really clever mechanism to make sure that we do ultimately come back together as as a group of people
0: and it Yeah, it, 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 I just really did sort of, kind of experience that, and it's and it's interesting. Well, we're going to delve into some of these chemicals <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a little while, but before I talk to you about chemicals and 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 how they uh, how they're released in in our bodies, talk to me about hip to waist waste ratio because oh. this is a bit of the bit that for for a guy reading the book, this is a bit. Hang on a minute, that explains a hell of a lot. I can't. <laughs> my brain is always on curves, you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's to
1: do with how we're attracted to each other. So um, if you look at sort of, there's been a lot of research looking at what is it, because when you select your mate, as we call it in science, um, what you're actually doing, even actually if you don't want kids, is you're selecting the parent of your child and you want to select somebody. So if you're a male, you want to select a woman who is young enough that she's fertile, has indicators of being fertile because you are going to commit to this woman and having your child with this woman. And therefore you want to make a good choice that she's going to be able to become pregnant and carry that baby to full term and then be healthy enough to raise it with you. And one of the really the best indicators of that when we look at a woman is her waist to hip ratio. And the ideal is 0.7. And people find this really hard to deal with, but that's that's your classic hour hourglass you know, curve. Um, so it's nothing to do with size it's nothing to do with dress size it's that proportion of waist to hip that's important and the reason why it comes out as being the most popular is it's very strongly tied to things like fertility so we know that people with a 0.7 are have lovely high levels of circulating estrogen we can tell they're not menopausal because when you're menopausal your waist thickens there's a really strong tie between 0.7 and things like um, diabetes heart disease various forms of cancer so it's a really good indicator of fertility and health and that is is why we know that university doesn't matter what culture you go in if you show men a range of different proportions they will pick the 0.7 mm. because it's a really and they've evolved to be able to do that and lovely eye tracking experiment which I absolutely loved is where they put eye trackers on blokes just walking down the street and saw what they looked at first when they looked at a woman and they do they look at the waist to hip ratio first that's the first thing they look at because they're doing this very quick calculation, which you don't know you're doing in your brain as to, you know, what is that ratio? Um, So yeah, it's one of the things, it's one of what we call the mate mate choice indicators. It's one of the things that the heterosexual men look at.
0: Mm. It's interesting, actually, my wife's going to throttle me for saying this is that our first date we went to, I'll never forget. This is a pub in Blackheath. And don't worry, this is not going to (laughs) go into dodgy territory, Um, but she was sitting on a bar stool. And so we were sitting on a bar stool kind of opposite each other. And obviously, and I think she and, and don't ask me why I remember this, but she I think she was wearing trousers that evening. But my point is, is that years later I said to her, "I said, oh, the things that attract. One of the things that attracted me to you was your curves, and because obviously sitting on a bar yeah. stool, you can see. You know, instant, yeah. it's an instant yeah. thing you see. So when yeah. I when you were when you were describing this in the book, I was listening to it thinking. Oh, right. Okay. So that's why that, and, and there's lots of insights in the book as to yeah. when you're describing things, I sort of think, oh, actually I, I can, I now I understand why that is the case, you know? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, that was the idea behind the book a little bit. Cause I, you know, we've all got experience of being attracted to people and we've all got experiences of love, whether it be like romantic or it be with your kids or your dog or whatever it might be. And that's why I wanted to write the book as well. Cause I wanted everybody to, to read it and go, oh, And understand maybe a little bit more about who they were, but also bring their own experiences. And that's why I interview lots of people for the book. And obviously, you have all those quotes because I get called an expert in love. And I suppose academically, I am, but we're all experts in love. You have experiences of love to bring. Uh, And because there's no right answer, all of those experiences are valid because you've experienced them. So that's why that's there as well. Because I just think we all have, and I always learn so much. So In the days when I got to do live talks, which I um, haven't done many of since COVID, um, you know, that's I used to love the question and answer session because at the end, people will ask you questions about and then bring their own experiences and they will say something to you which you've never even thought of as an academic. And you go, oh, wow. Yeah, like that's an experience that I haven't thought about looking at. And I think that's really amazing. And that's partly why I wanted to write the book as well because I just think we can all learn about love and relate to it because even if you know you don't think you're very good at it or whatever you know you bring that to the book
0: yeah and i think do you know what there, i think as well there's a lot of merit to having this is a free what i would call free flowing discussion because yeah. just because a lot of the kind of content i see online right now uh particularly aimed at i'm, I'm going to talk main aimed at men just the, yes i see a lot of it is around pickup artistry techniques is about mm. stuff which is stroke rational and they're talking about hypergamy and all this kind of stuff and whatever. And like I said to a previous uh, guest, uh, Nina Power, um, uh, the problem is is it doesn't really help, you know, looking at it in, in a kind of a very analytical, very sort of cut and dried way is not really that useful yeah. in practice in a relationship because effectively it kind of makes it look um, it makes it almost like you're playing a computer game in which you're like acquiring skills and you're going to level up and, you know, and it's all very sort of, there's structure to it. And it, and, and life isn't like that. It's kind of very fluid. It's very sort of um, uh, impulsive. It's very uh, spontaneous. And trying to sort of fit it into these neat little kind of cubes where, all right, in this situation you do this, in this situation, mm. it just doesn't work like that. And I think that attempts to do this, I think are turning... I won't say necessarily women but maybe in some respects it is because of the modern dating market but I think certainly men I think it's turning their morph in their personalities a little bit into something that they're actually not in order to to tick the box that I should be doing this and all it yeah so it's a very interesting discussion right now and I think there's um there's people on either side and there's people in the middle and I think again coming back to this thing, if you can try and keep in the middle where you're kind of the yeah. kind of balance of both, yeah. it's best.
1: I think, I think you're absolutely right. And people, people, you know, again, would come to talks and say to me, yeah, some people would come to my talks and and hope that science would give them the answer, for example, of how to find a date or how to find their forever person. And I, i they probably always came away, you know, disappointed because they would say to me things like, okay, so at what stage does it move? You know, what day does, do we move from attraction to love or, at what point should I do this particular behavior? And I'd say, it doesn't work like that. There isn't a timetable where you go on day seven, your brain goes, ding and this happens. Because you are an individual and the other person's an individual. And it's not, it's not that kind of thing. There is no formula. There is no timetable. It's just, as you say, a free-flowing experience. There are things I can tell you about what's happening in your brain. There are even things I can tell you you know, to make sure you go on the date that gives you the optimum Uh, hope someone will be attracted to you I can tell you things like that but there's no control you can't control it you can just increase your chance maybe but yeah you're not gonna get you're not gonna I'm not gonna give you the rules there are no rules and I think that's the problem when you get those books that say the rules you know there aren't any and if you rely on that as you say you're actually not being you you're just fitting into something that doesn't exist
0: yeah and I think the thing is is I think there's a large amount and and you know, we're both of a of an age where we will there will be people within our social circles that have kind of checklisted themselves out of really probably a really nice relationship because they've got yeah. a checklist or they've got a type or they've got a certain markers that must yeah. be hit before things progress on to the next stage and they've spent so much of their lives doing that that an actual fact they're kind of hitting the midlife or past midlife point of life and they're kind of like well, I'm quite lonely now because I'm not actually with anyone, but yeah. I want this person to have blonde hair, blue eyes, be a certain type and yeah. be a certain shape and wear this kind of clothes and hang out in this kind of place. And you're just like, why don't you just roll with someone for a little bit and see whether it clicks, you know?
1: And I think, you know, I mean, a lot of that is down to online dating where you are asked to tick those sorts of boxes, hmm. you know? And, and so people have got used to having their wish list. and. But some wonderful um, research, I can't remember the exact statistics, but it's something like, Sixty percent of people end up with somebody who only had maybe one or two uh, aspects of their checklist, and something like thirty percent of people end up with somebody who had who doesn't tick any of their boxes. Yeah. Which I think is brilliant because yeah. that's 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 how it works. It's there's something indefinable about somebody. There's always going to be a bit that science can't explain to you, which is why I think love is an ongoing discussion that we can't explain to you. And, and that's indefinable about that person. But for some reason, that's what gets you going.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting the amount of people that I speak to. And again, <laughs> you, you you have these conversations as you get a bit older and you're like, and, and more frequently now I'll hear, well, when you say to people, "Oh, well, how did you get together? And, and they were like, they're like, well, she wasn't my type or he wasn't my type, but we just kind of just clicked. And yeah, exactly. um, like, they don't know why, you know, and it just,
1: yeah, opposite extract
0: and it works sort of thing. So, uh, which leads me, leads me on to my next uh, question and I'm going to deliberately pinpoint this at two specific things. and, uh, and, And I know I'll segue into the next bit. What are oxytocin, sorry, why are oxytocin and dopamine so important?
1: So oxytocin and dopamine, um, are one of the four chemicals that underpin attraction and love, and they are really important at the start of a relationship. Um, they tend to sort of wane off a little bit in long term love. But at the start of a relationship, they're important because oxytocin is the chemical that lowers your inhibitions to actually starting new relationships. And it does that by quietening the fear center of your brain. And that's the amygdala. Uh, and that's where your risk detectors are and where your fear sits. It's right in the middle of your unconscious brain. And oxytocin acts to quieten that so that you feel more confident, you feel less fearful, you know, that nagging, you know, esteem sapping voice that you have at the back of your head saying you're going to make an absolute idiot of yourself and the person won't like you. It's sort of shut up, basically. So oxytocin works in that way and it's really good. Um, Trouble with oxytocin is... It's such a lovely chemical. It can make you feel so chilled and so relaxed that actually you then don't make any effort to, to like get off the bar stool and go and talk to the person because you're having a lovely time. So dopamine also is released when oxytocin is released. And that's important because dopamine is your hormone of, of vigor. It's your hormone of motivation. It is your general reward chemical. So dopamine is released in lots of different circumstances when you do something you enjoy. So I know you've got a dog. I've got lots of dogs. You know, when you hug your dog, you're getting dopamine. But... It also makes sure that once you've put your attention on that person, which oxytocin is helping you to do, dopamine is one that gives you the kick up the bum to get off the bar stool and go and do something. So they're really important together. The other thing they do really well is they increase the plasticity of your brain, which means they make it more open to changing. And that's really important when you meet somebody because they do it in two specific areas, your learning bit and your memory. And obviously, when you meet someone for the first time, you have to... Try and learn everything you can about them and then remember it. And they kind of help you do that really, really efficiently. So this new person in your life becomes encoded into your brain.
0: Okay. So they're like the kind of gatekeepers that open. They are, exactly. Open, that's a brilliant. Open, time. Open. I'm going
1: to nick that. That's going to be nicked. Um, yes, they are the gatekeepers of 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 love. Oh, that's lovely. I'm going to use that.
0: <laughs> the, gatekeeper, the gatekeepers. Now, yeah. um, if, if, uh, if we talk of oxytocin and dopamine as the gatekeepers, then... Yeah. Um, then the army has probably got to be the next one that I'm asking, going to about to ask you about, which is beta endorphin. Which I know is, I know yeah. from your previous book, this is something, a, a, a chemical that you feel quite uh, passionately about, and it has a massive amount of um, uses, and it does a hell of a lot under the bonnet.
1: It does, yeah. So beta endorphin, probably a bit biased because it is the one that I studied the most. But beta endorphin is important because, as I said, oxytocin and dopamine are really great, but they're quite short lived Mm -hmm. and they're only released in quite a restricted set of, of circumstances. So to be released in any real amount is associated either with sex. So you get a hit of oxytocin when you when you orgasm and also childbirth. So they're quite tied to reproduction. And if you think about human relationships, the vast majority of people, you know, are platonic relationships so your family your friends your work colleagues whoever i be so we need a chemical that can underpin those and we also need a chemical that's really long lasting because human relationships can last for decades and therefore oxytocin is just not powerful enough to underpin them in the long term and beta endorphin is first of all because um, it's an opiate so it's it's addictive and secondly we don't build tolerance to it so it's still powerful as however long the relationship is and the other thing that's important is it's released in lots of different ways which aren't associated with reproduction so you get a hit of endorphins when you when you laugh when you sing when you dance when you touch somebody when you exercise all of these things release endorphins so you can you so it can be released you know when you have a good old laugh with your best friend or you know anything like that you will get that hit so it underpins all those friendships as well um okay. so that's why it's really really powerful
0: okay what blew my mind the most um, was just how it operates when you're in a group environment.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant, uh, isn't it? Uh, and
0: and and the impact it has in kind of enhancing that group environment experience. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So what we found was if you do a behaviour that releases beta endorphin on your own, let's say you go and do some exercise. Um, you get hit with beta endorphin and you feel euphoric and it's lovely anyone who does a lot of exercise knows that euphoric high um however if you were to do the exercise in a group and you all did the same thing so let's say you, i mean one of my colleagues did a brilliant rowing study where she got members of the oxford rowing team to row on their own they got an endorphin hit marvelous but then she got them to row together as their eight and the endorphin hit was multiplied you know tenfold there seems to be something going on that if you do something in synchrony as a group, you get an um, absolute ramped up beta endorphin hit. And so it's really good. It seems to have evolved to underpin our group level interactions as well, because humans not only have these two way relationships, but we have these relationships which exist in big groups. So, you know, army units, teams, you know, football teams, football supporters, you know, they have this thing where they do these behaviors, which really tightly bond them. So if you think of football supporters all chanting, if you were to, you know, ask them, After they'd had a good old chant all together at the game, how close they felt to everybody else, it would be ramped up. It brings them all together. They have this shared activity and they've all had a massive endorphin hit from doing it. So it seems to have evolved also to underpin our group level cooperation, which is really important because we do a lot of activities as groups, not just as two people.
0: This is fascinating. And I, I'd love to know where this kind of originates thousands and thousands of years ago. We really what don't know because the
1: endorphins are part of your painkilling circuit. So when you hurt yourself, you get hit a beta endorphin. It's a painkiller. Um, but we don't quite understand why it then moved across. I mean, it still is your painkiller, but it's what we call co-opted into the social area. We don't quite understand that mechanism of why it went from being something that was purely to do with physiological pain to actually you know being associated with, with social interaction
0: mm, that's fascinating it is fascinating we'll probably come back into packing into, back into beta endorphin one thing that i w- really kind of interested me about the book was that you delved into attachment and i'll tell you why it interested me a lot of the work i do with dads um and recently i've become slightly interested in um interested in how things that have happened earlier on in people's lives play out in their relationships i've also been sort of delving into a bit of um the jungian stuff around midlife but also um shadow work and and peaceful parenting so i've mm. been, i've been exploring this how kind of uh, your shadow and also peaceful parenting kind of can break this kind of chain of mm. things happening in from children to midlife and whatever and stuff which is which which is why attachment has become sort of kind of quite interesting for me because it 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 kind of weaves all these it weaves these things together uh in terms of uh how we form attachments when we're sort of growing up and stuff. Mm. So in terms of attachment, what is it and why does it impact why we love in such a
1: in such a major way, Anna? Well, attachment is a, a psychological concept which explains the very, very they're quite rare, but the very intense deep relationships that you build at certain points in your life. And obviously your first attachment relationship is to your carers Mm -hmm. as a child. And attachments can be either secure or insecure. And what's interesting about attachment relationships is they're what we call developmentally significant. So they seem to have an impact on how you behave and how you feel, and they can have a biological impact. So the reason why your attachments as a very young child are significant Is because those attachments have a profound impact on the building of your brain. So the human baby is born too soon. And that's because we've got to fit this massive brain to this very narrow canal. So, you know, she or he pops out months before they should. And that means that we've got this period of rapid brain growth in the first two years after birth. And the bit that's really powering ahead at that point is your prefrontal cortex, which is the area of the brain which is linked to social behaviour, social cognition, all those pro-social skills such as empathy and trust and reciprocity. And because it's growing during this time, it's really susceptible to the environment in which you are being raised. So if you have a secure attachment to your carer, so it's a very they sensitively care for you, they meet your needs, it's very reciprocal. You know, lots of touch, lots of eye gaze, all those sorts of lovely things. Then your Prefrontal cortex is building that all into its experience, into its social areas. So, you know, you've got this brain that's bathed in all these lovely neurochemicals, very low cortisol, and we get really good, lovely, dense gray and white matter in that front of it. So that means that that person is really set up going forward to have really secure attachments as they grow, because they've got all the brain architecture in the right place, lots of lovely neurons, all very dense, to enable them then to be very sociable, to build those relationships as they go through life. If the opposite happens and you get a child who's brought up in an insecure attachment or even a neglectful attachment, they don't get that. They get um, They don't get much of the neurochemistry. They get very high levels of cortisol, which is, is profoundly damaging if your brain is bathed in cortisol the whole time. And they don't get this lovely dense gray and white matter in that area. In fact, we, we quite actively see a thing called neuronal death. Mm -hmm. Which means that, you know, you look at that bit of the brain and it's really not very heavily connected. There's not a lot of structure there to support social relationships. Those children tend to struggle much harder with showing appropriate pro-social skills. They tend to have problems with emotional regulation. When they're older, they might have problems with sort of antisocial behaviors and and. Putting forward appropriate behaviors and social situations. Um, So they are much more at risk of that kind of thing. And they might go through life finding it much harder to build good attachments to people, secure attachments to people, healthy attachments to people. Mm -hmm. So attachments, particularly in the first two years, are really important. I mean, this is this is what, you know, someone like the Duchess of Cambridge is really focusing on, and she's right because that is profoundly important. And what you tend to find is children who don't have a secure attachment as children, you look through their life and you can see the markers of it. You know, they're more likely to, unfortunately, have mental health issues. They're more likely to have addictive issues. They're more likely to end up in jail.
0: Yeah. And and also I think...
1: They haven't been given the structure, the foundation to be able to cope.
0: Yeah. And also the role modelling, I would imagine as well. Um, Yeah, exactly.
1: And the role modelling, you know, these people when they become parents themselves, they haven't seen how to parent. So there's two things. First of all, they haven't seen how to parent in an effective way. Secondly, they just don't have the biological structure to support them to be sensitive parents. So they've got this horrible double whammy of both, you know, their their environment and their biology is acting against them. And that's why you see, you know, parenting, suboptimal parenting crossing generations because, they are just doing what they have been shown to do and what their biology supports. So breaking that cycle is hard. And it, you know, a lot of people work interventions to try and break that cycle so that we can go forward and and people can be sensitive parents, regardless of the example they were given or how they were treated as children. So it's really, really tough. Some people have been dealt a really hard hand in life. And I think, you know, we have to understand that from a place of empathy that that for some people, it's really, really hard to build these relationships and to have healthy relationships.
0: Yeah, and I see that coming out of the other end with dads, basically. Yeah. So yeah. I see that. I, I see it with, you know, when you sort of speak to guys and you say, you know, what was it like growing up? Oh, my dad. And sometimes as well, it's not abuse, over abuse or neglect. Sometimes it is actually just a case of... um their parents just weren't that present with them. So they were yeah, kind of. Exactly. They, they, yeah, they, it doesn't they, have to
1: be, you know, you're you're actively neglected. It can just be that maybe your parents were aware of your needs, weren't interested in your needs, you know, were busy at yeah. work, whatever it might be. Um, so you know, it can be something not relatively minor, you know, most kids are pretty bombproof, proof but you know, it can it doesn't have to be out and out neglect yeah. for this to happen.
0: I'm just gonna jump into the conversation quickly. I'm pretty excited to let you know that I have a membership brotherhood exclusively for dads called the Guild of Dads Brotherhood. If you're a dad into self-improvement and you want to get the accountability, camaraderie and resources of being amongst others on your dad improvement journey, then this is for you. Regular Zoom calls, monthly topics, deep dive trainings, accountability and a system of self-improvement built in will see you beginning to really thrive in multiple areas of your life and develop more purpose resiliency and confidence to find out more drop me an email joe at guildofdads.com and i can give you some more information yeah it's very it's very i'm realizing a lot that it's often very subtle it's often yeah
1: and also unfortunately because of your genetics and i touched on this in the book some people are more sensitive to that than others unfortunately yeah. Um, so some people's genes make them more sensitive to their upbringing than others do. Other, I mean, I I've sort of found this out. This work when you know people would say to me, oh, you know, I'd tell them all about this, and then they say, oh, you know, um, I had the worst. And then they tell me about their childhood, which was awful, but they had actually gone through life and done really well, and had you know healthy relationships, you know, all those sorts of things, and were really good with prosocial skills. And then you find out that they have a set of genes that this a bit like a, a coat of armor which protected them from their childhood. Is this, um, the, so is this the,
0: uh, G, the G G genome?
1: Yeah, lots of Gs, lots of Gs, a few As. Um, yes, that's the one. Uh, it's, it's a particular version of the oxytocin receptor gene, and it okay. seems to protect you from your poor environment. Um, and so those people in one sense have been lucky. They've kind of dodged a bullet yeah. a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, I think it also depends on how, much information this is just my anecdotal experience I think it depends on how much information and I'm going to speak for men what information people have had men and dads have had over their lifetimes because I think and we might have delved into this in our last conversation I think you know when you get a bit older you're like kind of like oh actually you've got the benefits of wisdom and hindsight you've learned a little bit and stuff and um I think when you're younger you don't have like a you don't like a yeah. have like life manual to say Absolutely. oh yeah well, I'm going to deal with this situation in this particular way so I think you kind of you deal with it in the best way you can give the information you have at the time and then as yeah. you get older you're like mm, maybe on reflection I could have dealt with that a little bit but you don't have that information at that point so it's Absolutely. a really kind of frustrating thing yeah of life, and age does know. affect
1: it completely again in the book I mentioned this is that as you get older your attachment your your treatment as a child becomes less of an impact upon you because yeah, you learn life experience. You meet other people. You maybe see other people modeling good relationships. You become more aware of maybe some of the things that you might do that, that sort of are not great and you start to try and actively change them. So as you get older, yeah, the effects of those early relationships becomes less Mm. because as you say, you gain wisdom and you see other ways of doing things. And maybe you meet some people because attachment isn't fixed, it's a it's a fluid concept. So let's say you meet somebody and you have a relationship. Let's say you're really insecure attachment. You might be I don't know fearful fearful avoidant or something like that. But if you if you end up in a relationship with someone who's secure, for example, the fact that they give you that secure foundation can mean over time that your attachment changes to secure as well. So it's it's a very fluid concept. It's not fixed in stone.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that's and again that that bears out what I've kind of like. One of one of the books that is very popular with men in particular is No More Mister Nice Guy, and mm. and 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 the, the the title is deceiving, but you but but it's very helpful for guys to kind of actually get into a mindset of actually thinking, well, um, I'm entitled to have my needs met and all this mm. kind of thing. And a lot of people, although he has his protractors, Robert Glover, ultimately it does help guys who are not very good at kind of communicating their needs and. And, and they've kind of developed maybe a, a, a kind of a, a maladaptive uh, attachment style to actually kind of address some of these different things and move to something that, which is more healthy for them, but also for their relationships as well. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, which is, uh, which is always good.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, you talk talked in the book about um, about how one thing that I, I was going to ask you was is when we talk about how when we're hanging out with other people do we do we hang out with people that we like or when we hang out with people do we become more like those kind of people and it's kind of this is like this echo chamber maybe tribal mentality that doesn't <laughs> happen uh in the modern world sort of thing
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We don't really know, really. I mean, ultimately, initially, something has to attract you to that group of people, to so those people. So, and one of those things will be similarity. So mm-hmm. they might have likes or values the same as yours. So it's definitely one of them, similarity. But also, studies have shown that friends also tend to think alike. So when you you know put them in a scanner and show them particular scenarios or whatever you see the same bits of the brain firing off and it seems like they perceive the world and they approach the world in similar ways. Mm -hmm. Now we don't know whether that's because they were always like that. So they've always thought the same, even before they met or by being together, they've become more alike. What you need is you need a study that has people before they become friends. So you can see, so that's a little bit complicated. You have to kind of predict who's going to become friends, but, um, but yeah. So we're not quite sure whether that is, I mean, Certainly similarity is important, but yeah, whether by being with somebody you become more like them, that might be also part of it. It's probably a bit of both, to be honest. Mm.
0: And an interesting experiment would probably be, again, coming off the back of the pandemic, Pete, how your views, like like within families and within, you know, relationships and within friendship groups, I think people have, you know, I don't think there's a person up and down this country who's not sat, uh, you know, having a barbecue with friends in the last couple of years and actually, at some point, stuff's got a bit fractious around,
1: yeah. um,
0: around either lockdowns or vaccines or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And so that would be an interesting kind of like anecdotal social. Yeah, social Well, that's term. really interesting as
1: well, because it's like how, how powerful of you does somebody have to have before you go, do you know what, I don't actually want to be in this relationship with you anymore because you're so different. And I think some people have experienced that. You know how because you know friendships are about shared values and how far does somebody have to push your values for you to eventually go? Mm-mm. And it is partly to do with how close the friendship is. So we're much more willing to put up with the with views that diverge from our own if the relationship is closer to us. If it's more distant, obviously we're much more likely to sort of shed that relationship and go right. You know that person I don't I don't like their views and I'm just not going to talk to them anymore. So yeah, it's interesting. How far does someone have to push you before you will go? Mm-mm
0: yeah and pandemic behavioral psychology is a completely that's oh, another absolutely. that's another i know itself. i mean behavioral psychology been, is
1: kind of field day i mean it's
0: yeah yeah the book has yeah, been absolutely. written on that one that book has definitely yeah. been written on that one and what i what i found kind of quite interesting as well was um when you talked about how uh how ge- we've delved into this already a bit how genes impact the way we we love and 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 the gg genome type far as how that yeah. Kind of inoculates you in terms of kind of abuse. But what interested me a lot was this notion of chosen family versus given family, and and again, it was one of those ones where I was listening to, it. I was thinking that's kind of pinging off in my, in yeah. pinging off in my kind of memory banks, and I'm kind of resonating with that because it just seemed like a a really um, interesting topic. Can you can you delve into this this notion of uh, chosen family for us?
1: Well, it's it's kind of slightly a Western concept, really, because we in the West are very, we have a very strict divide between our biological family and our friends. And they are seen as very different categories. And what a chosen family is, is a chosen family is people who you're not genetically related to, who carry the same level of importance and privilege in your life as a member of your biological family does. Mm. And so in the book, I talk to people who have chosen families and quite often they are people who might have, have fractious relationships with their own family, or simply don't have that and they love their own, but but for some reason, their biological family isn't meeting a particular need. Happens quite a lot in sort of LGBTQ plus families or Mm -hmm. people, because maybe they've been rejected by their family. Maybe they need people in their family who understand that particular identity. um, And they will choose people who are Close to them for whatever reason, and they will see them more as family than friends. So again, there's I did lots of interviews with people. There's lots of quotes where people say, you know, my friends uh, are sort of my my compensation for my, for my family. You know, I don't get on with my family. My family don't support me. They judge me. Whereas uh this group of friends, you know, are non-judgmental. They always support me. They've seen the worst of me, and they're still with me and all that sort of stuff. So the chosen family is very important. As I say, it's a bit of a Western concept because when you go into other non-Western cultures, that line between biological relatedness you know, you have to be biologically related to be family doesn't exist. So you will get people who somebody will refer to as my brother, my cousin who are biologically related, but they are seen as family and they, they carry that same, same uh, importance in terms of where they sit in the hierarchy and sort of the relationships that you have with them, the trust you give to them. Um, And, you know, actually, if we think, I think we're a bit funny about it in in the West, particularly in Britain, we're a bit wrapped up, but like my best friend, is definitely my sister uh, not my sister sister my sister i see her as my sister mm-hmm. partly because my relationship with my actual sister isn't great and she is the person who has always been with me and always been you know i've known her since i was 10 so i would say she is my sister she is up there with my parents for example and i think when we look we might all have somebody who's chosen family um but i think it's a really interesting concept and there's a lovely study in it looking at chosen family amongst teenagers, LGBTQ plus teenagers, which is in the book. Again, looking at p- them and saying, you know, they, they they find things within this chosen family, particularly in trying to explore their identity, which maybe their biological family can't give them.
0: Yeah, and there was some interesting studies as well you referred to where I think the kind of level and... T- t- the depth and breadth of topics that you discuss with your chosen mm. family are much greater than what you would absolutely with your given family. Yeah, which was yeah. kind of, and, and I've seen this actually within because um, what you know I do a lot on sort of um, self improvement or what I loosely term dad improvement now, and and I notice it a lot with um, we call it crabs in a bucket. So it's kind of, right. if you kind of want to get, if you want to sort of change your life or you want to be, you know, you know fitter or improve your mental health or you want to, you know, go back to school or study or whatever, you know, I, I notice it a lot where people don't get the support of their immediate family. Actually, no. they've got a lot more support from people outside of their family who are yeah. saying to go after it, you know, you only live once and whatever, whereas they're, yeah. they're kind of close to family, kind of like actually... No, because this might upset the apple cart, and they might change, and they might not. Exactly,
1: exactly. Know. And I think that's it. I mean, the word you always get with chosen family is non-judgmental. They don't judge me. Yeah. Whereas families, I think, are more likely to judge you. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason. Um, and so I think that's why a lot of people rely on them because they can go to them and they will get acceptance, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, and they. And the thing is, as well, is you don't have to. You're not seeking their approval. You're. It's a lot more. Right. You know, it's, it's 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 more of a non-approval-seeking setup as well. So, which is which I think is kind of refreshing as well. But I think it's interesting how, the, when I speak to guys in particular, often, um, you know, if they're trying to do something difficult, their family will either not talk to them about it at all, or they'll actually go out of their way to just be kind of it's like almost what they're doing just doesn't exist sort of thing. Yeah. And, um and I think that becomes for men and women I think that becomes like a quite a lonely place if you're sort of trying to do something quite difficult and yeah the people that you think should be close to you are, are kind of nowhere to be seen when you're doing yeah. that you know and,
1: yeah uh, no it's particularly hurtful yeah. I think because we do have this mantra of you know blood family and blood is stronger than water and actually I think a, re- a significant number of us discover that it's not actually and that your friends uh are actually closer to you and more supportive than yeah. your family might be. Yeah,
0: um,
1: and I think that's something we need to acknowledge. I think I was, you know, it was important in the book. I mean, that's why that the chapter about friendship is is called Underestimated, because I think we underestimate the love we have for our friends. And particularly what made me laugh so much, I interviewed lots of people around the world about friendship and uh, love of their pets. And sometimes we would do both in one thing. So I talked to them about their friends, and then we talked to them about their dog or whatever. And... Quite often I'd say to them, you know, particularly in Britain, do you love your friends? And they go, oh, I don't know. I've never really thought about it like that. I mean, obviously I like them. And then you'd say to them, do you love your dog? And they go, oh my God, yeah, completely love my dog. And it's just that, that slight reticence we have about saying we love our friends. Whereas, you know, you talk to somebody in Italy or, you know, maybe one of the more passionate Mediterranean countries, they go, of course I love my friends. My My friends are my life. And we just, I think, particularly in Britain, have a thing about, oh, you know, saying, but love exists for your friends. You know, you do love your friends.
0: Mm, I yeah, think we're maybe
1: a bit, bit, you know, uncomfortable with saying that.
0: Yeah, it's a different, I think it's just culturally different, isn't it? It uh, is, yeah. Um, and you refer to Italy and, you know, it's Mediterranean countries. I, 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 find, it in, I find it fascinating watching uh, Mediterranean countries just the way they kind of... You know the way they operate, and I've been in—I've you know, been in Italy before. And you know, the bell rings for lunch in the hotel. You've never seen so many Italians move so fast in your life. <laughs> but but what's—But what's even more interesting is just watching three generations of a family sitting there for like three hours eating, yeah, just
1: being whatever. together,
0: and not a mobile phone inside sight. Quite often, yeah. And um, yeah, so sometimes it's probably different in certain kind of more cosmopolitan areas, but. S- certainly, and I've seen this in Spain as well, where you know you, you're being like a bar, and you're like, Hang a minute, I've not heard a mobile phone go off for half an hour. Yeah, and then you realize there's no phones on the sides, there's no phones on tables, that it's just all, you know, yeah, face to face contact talking. Um, yeah, uh, so it does, uh, it, de- it de- definitely does vary. Um, one thing that I found quite interesting about uh, what uh, was how different talking about different cultures, how. A collective and individualistic societies operate in a different way what what's the difference mm. between a collective and individualistic society as so, tip
1: yeah we are we are individualistic here right. in britain as they are in america and that the, the belief in an individual is that the individual's needs are the priority so what you individually need is more important than what your group needs Whereas a collectivist country is one where the good of the group comes first. So you might actually suffer a considerable cost as an individual, but to, to do the good of the group. Um, and there are differences. Now, whether you're an individualistic or cultural society, uh, collectivist society, some of it's very deep-seated, some of it's due to do with religion, some of it's due to do particular philosophy in that country. Um, we as a culture have become more individualistic as we've gone forward. And certainly America. America's always been a reasonably individualistic society, maybe because it was a pioneer society to start with. So it was, you know, for the good of the individual, you went there. Um, But whereas if you look somewhere like China or India or somewhere like that, it's more of a collectivist society. So it's more about, and it sort of comes into the idea of love because um, love is based upon in some cases is that no. love has an element of empathy that you need to have empathy to experience love. You need to be tuned into somebody else's emotional needs, but we put more power on the importance of empathy here than they do in collectivist countries, because empathy is all about understanding the individual's needs. Okay. You don't really use empathy to understand the group's needs and therefore you know, you might say that that people from, I don't know, certain countries are less empathetic than us and see that as a negative, but it's not a negative. It's just that their love is based on a group love rather than an individualistic love, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so whether you are a collectivist or an individualistic country does impact your experience of love. Okay, Because it's how you've been brought up to decide what is more important. Okay. So for example, you might, as an in, in a collectivist society do something that was for the good of your broader family but was not good for you you'd be more likely to do something like that whereas in this country you'd be more likely to consider your own needs above those of for example your broader family okay
0: all right that makes it that makes it a lot kind of clearer and in in terms of those how society and environment impacts can that change over time historically as well so if you're a certain period of history in a certain culture all that change over a period of time as well?
1: It can do. I mean, if you look at romantic love in China, somewhere like that over the last sort of 20, 30 years. So before that, China was a collectivistic country. The concept of romantic love, as in, you know, oh, it's all being very passionate and you fall in love and it's love at first sight. And all those stories we tell about romantic love and, you know, the soulmates, they didn't really, that, that wasn't really a concept in China 20 or 30 years ago. It was very much based upon Um, Love being about uh, finding someone with whom you could raise a good family, you know, that kind of thing. Love didn't really come into it as the most important thing in a marriage. It was about, is this marriage, you know, going to be stable? Are we compatible in certain terms of our cultures? It might be that the family arranged it. Whereas now, because of the input of influx of Western media and all those romantic films, where you know the knight arrives and takes the princess off, and it's all about love and da 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 da. da. Now, young people in China much more focus on finding love as the basis for marriage than they mm. used to. So yes, certainly how we define love and what we think is important changes. I mean, you can even see it in parenting. So you know, these days, you know, we have this idea of hands-on involved parenting for 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 mums and dads. Um, but you look back you know hundred hundred fifty years to the victorian era that that was it was a very different way of raising your children mm. and expressing your love for your children so it's very culturally prescribed how you yeah. show your love
0: to your to, to to your to your yeah society and to your children yeah, and to yeah. Your honor actually.
1: yeah What's etc. I mean, and it's got even worse these days, I suppose, with Instagram and all that. If you think about all the uh, people you follow on Instagram, you maybe are looking at their relationships, or their romantic relationships with their children, whatever, and we all have a comment on it as to whether or not their romantic relationship is legit you know, is it the right sort of relationship? Are they displaying the relationship in the right way? Let's say with parenting, you know, you look at famous people, you know, and, and you know, if they've got a nanny with them or, you know, loads of criticism, you're not raising your own children or, you know, whatever. So we all have something to say about how people express their relationships and whether they're doing it right.
0: I, I love the way that you mentioned romantic in the book and the romanticism of love. And you mentioned it a few times during the book on different subjects, and the reason I the reason I like the way that, that you've mentioned it is because so I I, wrote, I read a book by a guy called James Hollis, um, who's a Jungian author, but he talks about kind of, you know, as you get older, letting go of this idea of romantic love and it becoming a little bit more spiritual. So you let go of the ego in the first half of your life and you go on this kind of soul journey. And it's kind of framed a lot of my thinking in terms of, you know, um, he said that we become a bit sort of in, in infantilized in this kind of romantic love of the kind of being younger and that and yeah. there's a few points in your book where you talk about um romantics both in terms of uh people who are who are uh aromantic i think the word yeah. was um uh and, and there's a, there are also a few other points what do you think about this notion of kind of soulmates and romantic and stuff is it is it actually kind of double-edged sword in the sa- in the sense that romance is a very nice thing but it's kind of people maybe pursuing it to the behest of something a lot kind of more deeper so is it a double-edged sword does it change as we go through life I think I know the answer for me probably (laughs) but what what, what are your thoughts on that because it's quite I I do think
1: it's a double-edged sword I think it's weird that we I think first of all, it's weird that we privilege romantic love above all level. You know, romantic love is the thing, you know. I mean, that's why we have a massive dating industry and a massive wedding industry. You know, it's like mm-hmm. this this fantasy that you have. And I think it isn't helpful because actually, A, there's no such thing as soulmates. Okay. People tend to say they they've got they're with their soulmate because they feel deeply in love. And that's lovely, but there is not one person in the whole world who will meet your needs. There just isn't. There are quite a few people who you could come across who you would be attracted to and be able to have a relationship with that's happy. So soulmates doesn't really exist. This idea of um yeah, being carried off, you know, on a horse by a knight and all this kind of thing. I think it sets up unrealistic expectations about what love is. Mm. You know, love initially can be very passionate. But over time, particularly as in long-term love, it becomes more what we call companionate. It becomes much calmer. It becomes much less romantic, you know, because you're living, existing in everyday life. There were going to be stresses. There are going to be times when you probably hate your other half. And it's not all going to be butterflies and roses. Definitely. And so in a way, I think it, upset- it, it sets up a quite unrealistic view of what love is going to be. And these narratives we have about, As you say, the idea of infantilizing us you know, when we fall in love, we're out of control and we're swept off our feet. And, you know, we, we, you know, we can't see the wood for the trees and this person is perfect. And all these ideas is, you know, actually, in one sense, they're quite dangerous. Um, And I write in my study, in my book about these narratives we tell about romantic love, actually, particularly setting young women up to maybe go into relationships that aren't that great for them. So, for example, relationships where there's a high degree of control or coercion, this idea that you're swept off your feet and you have no control over your feelings can equate to I have no control over what my partner tells me. Or, you know, I have no control about, you know, doing everything he says because I have no control because I'm so in love. And actually, that's not a very helpful narrative mm. because, you know, love isn't, you know, you have control in your relationship. If somebody is doing something that you don't like, you know, you should be able to feel like you can say, right, this isn't, this isn't mm-hmm. what it should be. So I think the romantic narrative is not helpful. The romantic narrative is not related in any way to any science. It's no. just a, a story we've told ourselves about it. And it's been picked up particularly by people like dating and wedding industries and Valentine's Day and all those things. And I think also particularly if either you can't find that or you can't find yeah if you can't find that image you think that it doesn't exist when in fact actually maybe you're just looking for something that doesn't exist which is the romantic perfection or like someone like who is an aromantic who i spoke to for the book people who are aromantic don't experience romantic love and can you imagine operating in a world where you don't experience romantic love and everybody is obsessed with it? So every film you see, every book you read, you know, every person you meet, you know, have you got a boyfriend, girlfriend? Do you live with anybody? Da, 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 da. You know, are you looking for anybody? All these sorts of things. Just this, this assumption that everybody is looking for somebody mm. and everybody wants that um, is really difficult to operate in. And, and also our idea, you know, if you say to somebody, I've interviewed a romantics, they go, ooh, like it's a bit weird. Because we decide that romantic love is the love you've got to experience. These people experience love in loads of different ways. They love their family and their friends and their pets and their gods and all this sort of love. They have all the other sorts of love. They just don't experience a rom- romantic love. So why do we think they're so weird? Mm. That's why, it, you know, I've got friends who don't believe you can love a dog. I love my dogs, but they, that, I don't think that makes them weird. But we think if you can't experience romantic love, it's weird. And it's not. Yeah.
0: It's just a sort
1: of love you don't have.
0: And I think there's a society. It's kind of straight. Like I, um, during that first uh, year of kind of lockdown, I decided that I was going to knock booze on the head for the first couple of few months, and it actually ended yeah. up turning out to be a whole year. Um, but it gave me an interesting insight because when you say to people, "I've like I've got back on it," but now, but but I, but I managed to do over a year, not anything yeah. at all. Um, but it gave me an interesting insight because people would be like, the first reaction is, well, "Have you got a drink problem?" Well, no, I just thought I yeah. had for a bit. And so, um, but what was the most interesting thing was when you go into a supermarket and you kind of like, you know, you, you all of the cigarettes have like got a big like curtain in front of them because they're bad yeah. for you. And yeah. then you go down the drinks aisle and it's like two or three aisles of the most beautiful labeled intricate yeah, bottles and everything. Yeah. Like, it's like a shrine to booze sort of thing. Yeah. And it's interesting that that kind of experience kind of is similar to what when I, was, when, you, when I was reading about aromantics in the book, I was like, it's kind of a bit like that, where you just like, people just don't get it. They just don't get no, it. they and, really just and don't get it. And, it's
1: really, and, really strange. And these people, I mean, I feel so sorry for them. It's really hard to find uh, members of that community who would talk to me, I think, because they've had such a bad reaction from their families, you know. You know or, you know, just people saying flippant things like, oh, you know, they go, well, I, I don't have, you know, um, I don't feel romantic love. And people just say, oh, you just haven't met the right person yet. So complete denial of their experience. Mm. Of course, you just haven't met the right person yet. And that kind of thing. And you think, God, no wonder they don't want to talk to anybody about it because they always get a negative reaction. Mm. And no one actually, yeah. you know, very few people will accept it and just go, okay, yeah. that's that's I, you. W-
0: we could do a whole we could do a whole podcast on is romant, is romantic is romanticism a bad thing I definitely I definitely think we could we could do a whole podcast dedicated to it. but what's in quite, what's kind of quite interesting as we've been uh, having this discussion today and extrapolated a number of different things from the book is how this notion of romanticism plus also when you combine it with something like um, an attachment style which isn't great. Yeah, You can see logically how problems are going to arise. And, w- and one of the things that I think, and because the podcast is uh, is aimed at dads and men, um, I'm just going to mention this, is I think also we have this kind of thing, well, we're going to settle down, we're going to meet a girl, we're going to buy a house, we're going to have kids, and we're all going to live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Problem is for a lot of guys, as you know from the book that you you wrote, is that there is this kind of like, I hold a sheet of paper. But people can't see this while we're listening. Guys go along this kind of point in life and whatever, and then all of a sudden they get to this happily ever happily ever after bit, and it just kind of falls yeah. off a cliff. It's yeah. Like there's this no man's land between happily ever after and retiring and doing all the stuff that you, yeah. you know you. So and this creates a bit of an existential problem for
1: yeah.
0: men and women, yeah. I think, because there's this kind of well, hang on a minute what was happily ever after meant to look like because it certainly doesn't exactly. look and like you have like this ideal right you now. have this
1: ideal which is spun by the media and social media and the stories you read and of this perfect perfect life and it's just not like that and that's why i don't think it's a very helpful narrative to have it's a much more helpful narrative to say you know, you'll meet someone, hopefully you will be passionate in love with them. That will last, you know, from a few months to maybe a couple of years. Then you'll start to settle into, you know, more of a companionate love where, you know, you are in love, but it's very, very different. And, you know, you've built an attachment to them and you're fond of them. And, but at the same time, you will have to deal with some pretty crappy, difficult things in life. And, you know, actually what it's about, you know, relationships that work is are those relationships where hopefully you have a pretty strong foundation, which you can, you know, build your rocky little tower on and hopefully your rocky little tower stays standing. Yeah. And that's that's actually what relationships are like. Yeah. And I think sometimes even though it sounds a bit negative, it might be more helpful. I mean, I wrote a piece for The Guardian, actually, for Valentine's Day, which was very un-Valentine's Day, because it was about this problem with romantic love and the narrative. And what I would like to say is, and partly the book, the reason why I include so many different sorts of love in the book, and it's not a book about romantic love, is because um, I want people to re-engage with all the other sorts of love. And if you haven't got romantic love in your life, okay, that's all right. Look at all the other sort of love you've got in your life. Romantic love. There's no hierarchy. Romantic love is not like better for you than the love you have for your friends or your family or even your dog. Mm. That's not how it works. And so I wanted to say, you know, okay, Valentine's Day, which is this obsession with romantic love. You know, I think it's had its time. Actually, you know, we need to rebrand. And if we're going to have a day celebrating our love, let's make it more inclusive. Love is wonderful. But it can be love for anything. And I, someone from Mexico sent me a tweet when they'd read it and said, this is what we have in Mexico. In Val- on Valentine's Day in Mexico, it's actually a day of national celebration of love and friendship. So it's not about it's, romantic love.
0: Which you should it's be. That, the, thing, the thing is, yeah. you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a garden and just tend to one tree in your garden. You tend exactly. to all the trees in your exactly. garden. Exactly. So, it does, so make, it, it does make perfect, it does make absolutely perfect sense. Yeah, and and exactly. I, think as, I think as well, is like one... One thing I've noticed as well, and I'm digressing away from the book here, but again, in dealing with dads, sometimes within kind of marriages, what often, what sometimes happens is what I loosely call, loosely call parental martyrdom, where where people get together and they kind of merge into this one like that mm-hmm. and go forward, and then a few decades down the line, they're like, oh, I've lost myself, both yes. man and women, and so that all of a sudden there's a problem, and so sometimes it's about actually kind of cultivating that individuality and autonomy within the relationship which means also getting some needs met within the relationship but also having some needs needs met from friends and buddies outside the relationship mm-hmm. or interests or hobbies or whatever and stuff mm-hmm. it may be and, and, and i think when you with, with 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 men in particular when you begin to kind of put this kind of infrastructure back in place outside the relationship and it's a lot more kind of I'm not saying you're selfish within the relationship, but you're kind of a bit more individualistic, but mm. you still have that union together. Mm. Um, it's a lot more healthy way of doing life. Well it is,
1: well, that's so a, that's the definition of a secure attachment, is mm. secure attachment is somebody who so if you are securely attached, to the sort of person who likes being in the relationship, gets stuff from the relationship, but doesn't need the relationship. Do you know what I mean? -hmm. You You are an individual and you can get your needs met in other ways and it's important that you do that. That's a secure attachment. So actually having those other relationships is really important. And we've evolved to have those other relationships because they're important. They wouldn't exist otherwise. All these different sorts of love have evolved because we need them. Yeah. So, you know, we need our friends. We really do need our friends. And I always say, particularly for women, you know, 100 years ago, Women had to get married, really, if they wanted any status in society, and certainly if they wanted any financial support, you had to get married. And obviously, there was no contraception, so you ended up having loads of children. So you had those two sorts of love in your life. Today, a woman can choose not to get married because most of them are financially secure on their own, and she can choose not to have children. But you cannot get rid of your friendships. Do not get rid of your friendships because your friendships are really... In a way, the most important ones, because if you don't have friendships, then you will suffer. You will suffer. You will have mental and physical consequences of not having friendships. So actually, in a way, our friendships are our most important relationships. If you think about, like, if I think about my best friend, she has been here long before I met my husband and long before I had my children. She is my longest love. You know, I've loved I've loved her for 31 years it makes so, perfect you know, sense
0: as well doesn't it in terms of yeah. the context of this discussion it makes perfect sense there's, there's a ton of insight and takeaways from this last 15 20 minutes that's for sure so um, yeah yeah definitely exactly. definitely um and it's been a pleasure again
1: Thank you.
0: um delving into all of delving into the nuance of the book if you if you're listening listening to this the book is fantastic it's called why we love It delves quite heavily into a number of different areas that we've discussed on the podcast today. Um, I certainly enjoyed it and it it, it certainly uh, laced together a lot of the things that I've been thinking about in the last little while as well. So an absolute, an absolute pleasure, Anna.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on again.
0: What is the best way for people to find out about you, to link up with you? to um
1: Uh, you can follow me on twitter so i'm at dr amachen on twitter and i also have a website at animation.com so if you want to go on there there's lots of links to other things that i've done lectures you know articles that kind of thing so you can look there
0: all right super now because you're the second time you've been on here i can't ask you what is it what is it in life that gives you meaning because you've already given me an answer (laughs) to that um what is one thing that people are not talking about right now that they should be do you think
1: Oh my God, that's a hard one, isn't it? What should people be talking about that they're not talking about? Wow, you should have given me. Um, I have absolutely no idea. And I would say from the book, talk about yeah, all the other important loves in your life. Don't focus, don't be, don't be led by media and expectation. Talk about the other loves you have. Reengage with them.
0: I definitely concur with that. Definitely, Anna. It's been a pleasure. I wish you all the best with the book and I will speak with you soon.
1: Lovely, thanks a lot.
0: If you want to find out a bit more about Anna, the best way you can do so is by checking out her work at Anamachin.com. and you can also follow her on Twitter. Her book is Why We Love, The New Science Behind Our Closest Relationships. If you enjoyed today's episode, the greatest compliment you can give me is a rating or review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also share with friends or relatives you think may benefit from this episode, or be interested in some of the topics it covers. Uh, Don't forget, look me up and follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.